Hello, good morning, good evening, everybody. I hope you're all doing well. Welcome to Ask Abhijit 87. As you know, today is a live video chat session. So I'm going to take uh, video questions from those of you who will who would like to come on the video chat. So let us let me share the link for so that you guys can join the video chat. Uh, let me share it and pin it on the chat. One question per person, as always. Let me put that up. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Uh, here it is. Let me pin the message. And now you should be able to enter the video chat. You can see the pinned message. And I hope you're all well. I can see people are already coming in. It's it's great to it's great to see everybody who is coming in. Uh, so before we begin, uh, let us take a moment to pay tribute to one of India's greatest sons. Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj. Today is his birth anniversary, his Jayanti. One of India's greatest sons of all time. Definitely one of the greatest uh, kings of India in the past 1000 years. After the great uh, Raj Rajaraj and Rajendra Chola, I, I would say that he was the greatest. So, uh, so I would like to pay tribute to the great son of our soil. And let us also... Uh, if we wish to honor the memory and the legacy of Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj, we should also ask ourselves what were his principles, what were his values. If you guys know me, you would know that I have said that the great conqueror Chinggis Khan was a man of principles. Well, I can also say that Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj himself was a great man of principles. He lived and died by a set of values and principles. It's not enough to shout slogans and feel happy. We, if we really wish to honor the great man, we should try, try and study and understand his principles. And we should ask ourselves, what was his vision for India? If he, were, if he were to see India today, would he be happy to see what we have made of it? I, I strongly suspect that if uh, Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj were to see India the way it is today, he would be, he would be very disappointed with what our so-called leaders have done since 1947. So if we truly wish to honor him, we need to live by his principles and try and take India back to where he wanted it to be, Hindavi Swarajya. The, the secular socialist, socialist Republic of India is not the Hindavi Swarajya he wanted to establish. And I know that we are, Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj is, is, one, is a one in a thousand kind of person, but if us, we, have even 1% or 2% of his strength and greatness. If we stick together, band together, work together, we can do it. So let us try and honor the great man by living according to his values and principles. Okay, uh, enough of that. Uh, let's try and bring in some people. Uh, whom shall I bring in? Let me bring in Shambhavi first. Hello, good evening. Uh, good evening, sir. Yes, where are you from, ma'am? I'm from Kolkata, sir. Great to see you. Great to see you, Shambhavi. What's your question? Likewise, sir. So, uh, my question is that the Mughal King Akbar is said to make an intelligent use of secularism in a statecraft. So, was his political interest genuinely like that or was he getting a social security from that? I could not get half of your question. I'm very sorry. I think it was not clear. Could you please repeat a little slowly, perhaps? Sure, sure. Sir, I was saying that the Mughal King Akbar is said to make an intelligent uh, use of secularism in his statecraft. So was his political interest genuinely like that or uh, was he getting any kind of uh, social security from that? 
Okay, okay. The, the guy, what's his name? Akbar in, in secularism. Yes, our textbooks, our historians have tried very, very hard to portray Akbar as a very secular and just king, a very benevolent king. We just need to look at a couple of incidents from his life to understand what sort of person he was. He besieged the city of Chittorgarh. He was eventually, after uh, after a prolonged siege, able to take over the city. Uh, the Rajputs who were defending the city were massacred. Their women uh, uh, co co committed uh, Johar. And then there were a lot of people who had surrendered. And what this individual did is, in one day, he beheaded 30,000 men, women, children. Akbar. So is that the I mark of secularism? We have to ask ourselves. That's all I need to tell you. I think we are all intelligent enough to see that if a person has done such a thing, and that is not the only incident, by the way, there are lots of other incidents such as this, not of that extreme magnitude, but along the same lines mm -hmm. that you can find from the historical record, from the chroniclers of the time that he has done. So I don't see anything secular or, or benevolent about Akbar. He has been portrayed that way by historians for various reasons. But he's not that. Please, please understand. And you can look it up yourself. All the information is out there in the public domain. Just look it up. It's there. It's not, I'm not right. making it up. It's part of the historical record. Right. Right? Okay. So thank All right. You, nice thank you. Nice question. You. Nice meeting you. Thank Bye. You. Okay, let's bring in somebody else. Uh, who else do we have? Let's bring in somebody new I haven't seen before. Uh, let's bring in Mr. Shreesh. Hello. Hello, sir. Sir, nice meeting how you once again. Sir, oh, fine. How are you? Yes, okay. sir. Where are you from? Sir, I'm from Delhi. From Delhi. All right. All right. What's your question, sir? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, sir, uh, sir, actually, my question was, um, so, sir, uh, I wanted to ask the origin of Indian classical music. Sir, I, I myself, mm -hmm. uh, um, sir, I'm very much fascinated by our Indian classical music. So, sir, and sir, uh, the second part of the question is, Sir, what uh, steps should be taken by our uh, country to uh, develop a taste, uh, to develop taste for, uh, to develop the taste of Indian classical music among the youth of our country? Very, very good question. Yes, so the, uh, so if you, if you look at various historical texts and if you look at various. Uh, college and university syllabuses, there is absolutely nothing in the history departments about Indian classical music. I have not seen anything anywhere. The historians have not done any research into the origins of Indian classical music. How old is this tradition, etc. Uh, there was this, uh, uh, about more than 100 years ago, there was this great uh, uh, music historian, I would say, his name was Pandit Bhatkande. I think he, he studied the ragas, various Indian classical ragas. He classified and organized them into various thoughts and all that. That's the only, that's the last proper work that's, in, that's been done. But if you look at the, uh, the enormous corpus of the various ragas, etc. that we have, it's very clear that this is a very ancient system. It's been developed over God knows how many centuries. Every raga has evolved over the centuries. In the past, it was different. Today, it's different. So I don't have, an unfortunately, an answer as to how old this tradition is. I would, you know, if you ask me to make an educated guess, I would say it would date back to the Vedic, Vedic times. Indian classical music must have started around that time itself because that that period itself was a very advanced phase of civilization. So that's what I can say. Now, what can we do to bring the taste back? I mean, I mean, to make it more popular among the people, we have to get rid of, I mean, I would not say get rid of, but we have to reform Bollywood. Bollywood today does not propagate what is known, what is Indian culture. What Bollywood 
presents to people is something different it's not indian culture it does not represent okay. indian culture it is not representative of indian culture it's trying to uh, it's trying to it's trying to engineer the indian taste for music uh, to, to 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 attune it to certain foreign kinds of music so what needs to happen is uh, from the grassroots if we can if we can um, if we can promote musicians who are interested in this i mean there are lots of folk musicians in rajasthan in every state actually and there are lots of classical musicians also but they don't get any exposure they get no uh, yeah they get no exposure at all so yes sir if you have a bollywood song you will find it blasted everywhere there is so much promotion there are there's so much money behind it and when it comes to yes, folk sir. musicians and musicians who are let's say playing sitar or vocalists you get no exposure so somehow this needs to change i think as indian society gets more prosperous all of this will get more exposure but perhaps by the time it may be too late because we we no longer have the great musicians of yore you know so something needs to be done i would say the government of india it has a ministry of culture yes sir. i think it is the, the job of the ministry of culture to promote indian culture i think it is one of the least performing ministries the worst performing ministries in the government of india so that need, they need to wake up and something needs to be done but it is it is a uh, certainly very important that we revive indian uh, classical music yes. so it's a very good question that you asked thank you sir thank you so much sir bye sir all right thank you great question good thank you good bye night. good night okay whom shall we bring in uh, my problem is i don't recognize people's faces and then <laughs> okay let me bring in mr nirmit 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 hello uh, hello sir hello how are you doing i'm great sir where are you from are you sir mumbai mumbai i'm i'm great as always yes sir what's your question nice to meet you sir uh, i wanted to ask that who was the last greatest pan india leader because our current leader is not having that much influence in the southern states and what it takes to be like that means it it cannot be from one geography or one language or even a ethnicity like anything yes who was the last great uh, pan india leader so i would say you if we if you look at the last time india was politically unified under a non foreign constitution non foreign nonsense thing it was under the maratha empire around the mid 1750s so whoever was the peshwa at that time that person was the last pan india leader now that peshwa was essentially uh, i don't remember who it was uh, we can look it up of course it was around 1759 or so that we had the greatest extent of the maratha empire from southern gandhar afghanistan all the way to uh, mo- most of southern india so this empire was built over a long time its genesis lies in the greatness of chhatrapati shivaji maharaj he did the hard work he put the framework in place that his successors were able to exploit and benefit from to create this uh, this empire so it was not a one person thing it was it was the work of multiple generations of leaders the last great great pan india leader was uh, who could i say it was most likely it was uh, i i think rajendra chola conquered uh, parts of northern india up to up to varanasi etc he uh, conquered the ganga valley and all and uh, so, but he did not go all the way north i would say the last greatest leader before the last peshwa who was in charge of that must have been um, uh, skanda gupta most likely because he conquered all of india and unified all of india under one dominion skanda gupta was about 1500 years ago 
and of course we had lalita aditya muktapida also who conquered very large parts of india and way beyond that so we have a few very notable leaders who conquered so much and unified the country it's happened from time to time i think it is time for that to happen again unfortunately we have a prime minister etc but because of the structure of the indian government the constitution and all the other so called checks and balances etc the uh, prime minister of india does not have that much power as we think he has so things need to change for india to become great again but let's see let's see how it goes right sir so was netaji at least ahead of others means one question of the current age Sir, in this, in this. was not ahead. I would not say that he was ahead of Shita, of uh, leaders like Shivaji right. Maharaj. During his time, Shivaji Maharaj was able to win. Nitaji unfortunately lost. It is not his fault, but he was also great. But not. I see the duty of a leader is to win. That is non-negotiable. So that's just how it goes. All right, sir. Good Thank question. You. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Whom shall I bring in? uh let me bring in mr khushal hello hello sir so hi. my question is hi sir where are you, where are you from is, where are you from hyderabad i was in the last uh, live session also sir oh you were there so my question ah, all right yes <laughs> <laughs> so my question is uh, what can we do about the naga separatists sir like what's the update what's going on there right now like i've been trying to get update but i can't find any article like what do you think what's going on there right now yeah even i don't have sufficient information uh, that, that that part of india is rather remote and there is not much news that comes out of that place so we don't quite know what's happening i think uh, the situation is more or less uh, reasonably under some kind of control i don't have clarity unfortunately that is a sensitive part of india and uh, for whatever reason maybe for good reasons a lot of news does not come out from there so unfortunately unless you are a military uh, you are part of the indian military unless you have boots on the ground there you may we may not be able to quite know what's happening there so you know because i don't have sufficient information i cannot tell you what exactly is the situation there what i can say from a big picture perspective is that the whole of india needs to be properly integrated together like the for instance the northeast of india has been uh, given this step motherly treatment for decades from 1947 onwards it was constantly uh, kept underdeveloped deliberately so all of that needs to be undone we need to integrate this part this part of india with the, what what is called the so called mainstream india we need uh, connectivity good connectivity uh, airports we need uh, railways we need roads all that hopefully connectivity by by sea also if you can engineer that sort of a geographical marvel so that's what needs to happen the place needs to be developed there should be infra infrastructure we need to we need to have job opportunities hospitals schools colleges universities if we develop all that there will be no incidency development And, is the only answer development is the only only answer absolutely okay sir right? thank you so much sir yes thank sir. you good question thank you nice meeting thank you sir hmm. yeah bye okay whom shall we bring in my good friend is there i'll i'll make him wait just a little bit more uh uh whom shall we bring in i get the feeling it's the same four or five people who are coming in every time let's bring in mr dhruv hello hello sir hi where sir, are you from sir yes sir where are you from sir i'm from delhi delhi very nice sir yes, what's sir, your question sir. please tell me 
so my question is sir as i have observed sir and seen sir that so uh, vedic india sir was more acceptable to homosexuality and so sexual education as we can see sir in various temples there are many erotic sculptures and sir as we can see in mahabharat also there is a character named shikandi who was also homosexual sir so sir what changed that uh, this thing become this thing uh, was is now seen in a very negative way sir yeah good question so first of all uh, let me uh, just issue a small correction shikandi was not homosexual shikandi was a transgender trans uh, that, that's her sort of person it was not a homosexual person it was a person who was who had ambiguous uh, gender maybe some somewhere between male and female so the thing is this there has you know the leftists the professors the historians they have they we know how much they hate hinduism and indian culture and even despite that they have not been able to find a single instance of any sort of discrimination against uh, homosexuality or or lgbtq whatever they call it these days not even a single instance in indian history right it tells you that indian society has been always very open nobody cared what what your sexual orientation what your gender what gender fluidity whatever it was no one ever cared and there was no taboo against uh, whatever any of these things and like you say we have these sculptures on temples that which show how open and uh, free indian society was so what happened we came under foreign occupation in the past 1000 years the abrahamic culture is very different from indian culture what we call what we have the kind of culture we had in india for 1000 of years it's still visible to some extent in to the east of india places like uh, southeast asia thailand burma myanmar etc if you see their culture they are far more open and uh, liberal in the true sense of the word liberal than what india is today right so because we were under 1000 years of foreign occupation brutal foreign occupation that's why women had to start covering up their bodies people had to start behaving in a very different way than what the culture says and that's why all these regressive backward patriarchal attitudes crept into indian society over 1000 years first it was the turks and then it was the british and uh, portuguese and other foreign occupiers and their morality was always the same it's it's the abrahamic morality whether you like it or not and they, so that's how it was so that's why the attitudes have changed what we may no longer be under foreign occupation technically today but it takes time for a 1000 years of occupation that mentality that siege mentality to go away and all of that has become part of society just for the sake of survival and that's why we 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 have this these attitudes that are prevalent in india today so it's because of the foreign occupation not because of indian culture thank right. you sir thank, thank you, you sir. nice question nice yes, meeting thank you sir thank you all right okay let's bring in whom shall i bring in people are coming and going Let's bring in Mr. Aryan. Hello. Yes, sir. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Hi, sir. So, so my question Where is, are you sir, from? So, I'm from Mumbai, sir, Maharashtra. Have you been on this uh, show before? No, sir. I've not been here before. Okay, okay. Great, great. Nice meeting you, sir. What's your question? Yes, sir. Thank you. So, my question is, sir, do you think that there should be regulations put on the media, so as you can see, sir, how influential it is and how it influences elections in countries like the U.S. Hmm. Yes, excellent question. So, I would say that there needs to be some regulation of the media in the sense that we should not allow foreign funding 
in media organizations and agencies. When you have foreign funding, it is foreign interference because whoever is giving you the money, you will have to do what they want, right? Otherwise, the source of your funding is cut off and then you no longer have a media organization. So I am not saying every single news outlet in India is controlled by or, or funded by foreign organizations, but there are certainly many and you can just follow the money. It's quite, uh, it's not hard to find. So many of these news organizations, agencies, outlets are funded. Not all, but there are certainly some that we know of that are funded. There may be more that are funded from abroad and they get lots of funding from abroad. And when you have that big source of funding, you want to protect it. You want to keep benefiting from that. And that's why you are forced to give a certain flavor to your news that your masters want. So we need to ensure there is no foreign funding in the media. We have plenty of money in the country. India is no longer a very poor country. There's plenty of money, investment, capital, etc. available. We need to cut cut off the foreign funding, not just in India. I, I would say that all countries in the world should have this law that foreign funding is not allowed in the media because that will bring in foreign interference. And then you have all the manipulation of the opinions and interference in elections because the media is very influential when it comes to elections, the kind of projections they put across and so many things. So I would say that that is one thing that needs to be done. And secondly, I am I am not in favor of censorship. I think everybody should be allowed to express their opinion freely. But as long as it is a genuine opinion, as long as they're not trying to uh, engineer certain kinds of perceptions or because they are taking money from somebody. So that's the kind of thing that's need to be there. I think we need to have a free and fair media, but the media that is funded from abroad is not free and fair. So that's what I would suggest. If we, if we can do that, that will take away 95% of the problems. Right. So, so do you think so that uh, US media is funded by China? Uh, I have not looked into it, but uh, maybe, maybe you can look into it and let us, let us know. What do you say? Thank you. All right. Nice meeting you, sir. Okay. Mr. Aditya. Hello. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Pleased to meet you, sir. Hi. Nice to meet you. Where are you Hi. from, sir? I'm from uh, Bengaluru, Karnataka. Nice to meet you. What's your question, okay. sir? So, sir, I'm just going to ask two questions. You can answer whichever you want. No problem. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so the first question is, uh, sir, um, in uh, in all of Indian history, what has the role of uh, Jainism been? That's the first question. And the second question is, sir, when you want to achieve a goal, uh, should you th uh, do you think we should uh, give up on principles to do do that, or should we give up on the goal and change a goal if, if that takes us to like keep our principles? That's a very good question. I will take the second question. Uh, I am not a, a very big expert of, of Jainism. So I think I will pass on that one, but I will take up the second question. So let's say you have a big objective. Uh, let's say, let's take the, the, the example of Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj. He was born into an India that was occupied by the Turks. India was occupied brute and there was this brutal oppression of, of Hindus, of Indians, of Indian culture, destruction and all that. That's the India he was born into. He wanted to achieve freedom from the Turks. Now, yeah. He was born, he was the first son of a small chieftain who was serving the, I think the Adil Shahs was it? Most likely, yes. So that is the situation he was born into. Now he wanted to achieve that. So he waged this guerrilla war, what is now called guerrilla warfare, which means that you don't meet your enemy in open battle. You hide wherever you can. 
you try to cut them bleed them and then run away that sort of thing which is what the rajputs would never do the rajputs believed in honor ke hum aisa nahi karenge hum waisa karenge hum samne se aayenge that sort of thing right we'll we'll fight with honor we'll come from the front we'll we'll challenge you and, and we'll show our bravery even if we lose that's the kind of attitude the rajputs had the marathas were very different their objective was to win they didn't care how they won as long as they defeated the turks and the thing is this the turks were perpetrating brutal inhuman oppression on the people of india it doesn't matter how you defeat such barbarians you have to defeat them even if you cheat even if you lie even if you steal you have to get rid of them from the country the long term prosperity and security of the country is the overall objective how you achieve it doesn't matter as long as as long as you keep serving the people of the country you can take any route any method any path to achieve that so the principle is the principles the principles were never broken the principle is my my job is to serve the people of india my job is to serve dharma serve dharma and my job is to free my principle and my objective is to free india and how to achieve it doesn't matter sometimes i'll make a compromise with them sometimes i will sign an agreement with them and give up some forts later on i'll take it back when the time is right so you need to have a set of principles that you will not deviate from apart from that you can break the rules as long as the larger objective is met that is the that is the uh, way the, the, these are the teachings of vishnugupta chanakya i would say that shivaji lived by that uh, the later marathas who were able to reconquer india also lived by that and even uh, kings like uh, skandagupta samudragupta and the cholas etc they also lived by the principles of vishnugupta chanakya so as long as you understand that you can you, you you're fine you're not do, you're not doing anything wrong okay thank you sir fan, All right, fan. Fan. thank you thank you thank you so much nice meeting you thank you bye bye okay let us uh, let's bring in mr udit Oh, hello yes, sir. hello sir how are you sir oh we have met before haven't yes, we yes sir i have i've been here the i've been there all the sessions sir all the sessions well okay yes, where are you from again sir saudi arabia sir saudi arabia all right what's your yes, question sir, sir? so uh, my question is like i don't know the exact thing behind it or what was the reason i want to know the reason we keep on seeing the example of the trojan horse right like the greeks mm-hmm. wanted to enter troy so so what made them hide their people into the horse like into the wooden horse and then make them do that so like what's the history like what made them do it do you know anything about it see in warfare warfare is won and lost through deception yes sir right so we had this yes. war going on the trojan war and it yes, was sir. at a stalemate kind of situation none of the sides was winning we had one side which was uh, entrenched in this walled city and you had another side that was besieging the city and you had reached this state of equilibrium equilibrium neither was able to make a breakthrough it went on for years i think so these guys they came up with a new idea let's try something different something different to deceive the opponent all warfare is based on deception that's what sunzu said so that is an example of that itself the principle of deception so i think it's a question of thinking differently lateral thinking think after outside the box think inside the trojan horse whatever you want to call it and yes, that's sir. that's how the, this thing happened i maybe it's a real historical incident we don't quite know but uh, it's a very famous story and a great example of deception in warfare mm, yes sir thank you sir right, so sir. so uh, if i could just ask like within that question only i'm not adding another one i just wanted <laughs> i just want to know 
Yes, sir. So was it a war which made them go do that? A previous war which they were not able to win? It was the Trojan War. So the they, Greeks. the Greeks were not able to win that, and then they had to do this. Yes. Okay, sir. Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot, sir. See all you right. soon, sir. See you tomorrow. All right. All right. Nice meeting you. Bye. Uh, who else? Who else? Is there somebody I have not seen before? I'm getting the same people every time. I would like to give opportunities to people I've not met before. Let's uh, bring in Mr. Arun. I hope it's somebody new. Hello. Uh, hi, uh, Avijit. Nice to meet you again. Nice to again. All right, we have we have met before, <laughs> have we? Uh, only once, uh, I guess there okay. was one uh, yeah question that I had asked about the you know overall impact okay, of the so where, where are you from? Where are you from? Uh, I'm based in Hong Kong. Yeah. Hong Kong. All right. So, what's your yeah. question? Yeah. So my question is, uh, you know, there have been uh, you know many years of uh, colonialism by the Britishers, right, and mm -hmm. all the Commonwealth countries which have been uh, under their rule, uh, but till now. For all the damage and all the things that they have done, they are never given us any reparations, and neither they have yes. given us an apology. Uh, and then I do see that a lot of countries have done it for African countries. Uh, I mean, uh, recently also they have, uh, you know, some other countries they have given apology for, but till now they never done it for India, and they have done the biggest damage to Indian, uh, you know, economy and everything. They looted and all yes, of that. Yes, we know that. Yes. So I, I understand like why is it and how can even they come to the realization that they should be apologizing for at least doing all the ill deeds. And also, you know, what can we do from our side to make this, uh, you know, whole thing come into a bigger light? Yes, it's a question I've got multiple times, but it's a good question. So, uh, yeah. you know what? We don't need an apology from them. Yeah. We would want reparations, war reparations from these people. Uh, the thing is this, the reason why they have not given any reparations, any damages, any apology or anything to India is because India has always been a terribly weak country until now. Today, India is rising for the first time since uh, 1947. You had all these decades of the Nehruvian rate of growth in which India was growing at 1%, 2%, 3% per year. So India never became a large, sizable power from the economic perspective. And if you don't have a large economy, you don't have a large military. So India was always a small, weak nation despite its large size. And nobody respected India because India was a land of poverty. Because of the small economy, everybody was starving. It was there. Whether we like it or not, that's just the way it was. Yeah. So India never uh, was able to gain in the, the, the respect of the West. And India was never able to become so sizable that people would worry about the consequences of what they had done in the past. Even today, India is not in a position to push the UK around. But once India reaches about $10 trillion in its economy, that's when there will be consequences that the UK will have to face if they don't uh, behave in a certain manner towards India. The kind of deference that they show towards China today, India yeah. is not in a position to command that. So it is, see, the world doesn't care about what's right and what's wrong. The world respects power. The world fears power. Respect comes from fear. So you the have to make the world fear you first. Then they will respect you and then they will apologize to you and they may even issue some reparations or you may be able to extract reparations from them. So it's all about, see, the, the world, actually, it may look like a very civilized place, but in from the geopolitical perspective, global perspective, is the rule of the jungle. The biggest fish wins. So that's what India has to do. And then things will become very different once we reach that position. Okay, yeah. sir. 
okay thank you very much yeah. pleasure talking thank you nice meeting you again thank you yeah. bye okay uh do i have somebody new ashta shahi sorry akshat akshat shahi hello namaskar sir namaskar namaskar where are you from sir so i am from uh, up uttar pradesh lucknow nice to meet you you the first time here right are you yes so i am the first i am first time here first so time. my question nice is, to meet you uh, yeah so my question is is the concept of communism uh, sounds mm-hmm. so good on paper but why mm-hmm. uh, the country which adopts it uh, usually don't succeed very good question very good concise question but a very good question right communism sounds great on paper communism says everybody should be equal right uh, everybody should have the same amount of money everybody should have the same kind of house to live in the same opportunities everybody everything should be the same so it is not about equality of opportunity it is about equality of outcome right they want everybody to be equal now look at the let's look at the world around us is the world an equal place is equality something that is natu- part of nature look at the different animals that we have we have lions we have tigers we have elephants we have little mice we have little rabbits is the world equal no the world is not equal look at human beings some are tall some are short some are not very intelligent some are super smart geniuses the world is not equal when we uh, when we play the olympics are we celebrating equality or inequality we have a 100 meter race do we ensure that everybody ends at the same point and everybody gets a gold medal no that's not that we are celebrating inequality when we play the world cup in cricket or football we want only one team to win because it's all about who is the best inequality is the way of nature and we are trying to go against nature when we are trying to impose equality of outcome when we uh, when we go to school does everybody do you, does the teacher give everybody first rank why do we have exams why do we have job interviews the world is about inequality everybody should get the same opportunity you cannot give people different kinds of opportunities some people are oppressed suppressed and some people are given more opportunity that is wrong there should be equality of opportunity and then it's up to you what you make of the opportunity in communism they are trying to create equality of outcome which is just unnatural it just doesn't work and secondly communism is a way of uh, it's it they say religion is the opium of the masses actually communism is the opium of the masses because they make people feel everybody will be equal but at the end of the day in every single communist country where the communist experiment has been done you will find that there is this one stratum of society 99% of people who are all poor or at the same level and there is this so very small super minority who have all the privileges the communist leadership so, so it's always been like that and every time they make the excuse that they did not do it properly they did not implement communism properly so let's try it again in a new country and that's how it goes so that is the reason why communism has failed over and over and over again and it, it will keep failing every time they're going to try it so all right sir uh, so i'm going to add add mm-hmm. something in that question so so may i go ahead so what is the best, best form of government according to you look at the past 10000 years look at the greatest kingdoms empires everything and see what worked that is the best form of government all right thank you sir thank you nice meeting you good questions okay let's bring in mr shaurya hello hi sir good evening sir good evening nice to meet you sir where are you from jamshedpur and i am for the second time 
Okay, no problem. What's your question, sir? Uh, so, and coincidentally, I am again wearing the same T-shirt. <laughs> so my question no is that, like, uh, we see in, uh, Invader is coming to India. Like Alexander came and Vasco da Gama. See, my question is that how did they talk? Like they have totally different languages. If Vasco da Gama comes to India, then here we speak a different language and. They are totally different languages. Then how did they communicate? Like today we have English as a global language, but back then. That's a very interesting question that you asked. Very interesting question. When these barbaric Europeans, Portuguese people, come to India, how did they communicate? I suspect this is how it happened. See, uh, the the Europeans were in contact with the Arabs. We know that. because they got all of india science knowledge mathematics everything from the arabic world so many of them knew arabic so i would expect that when these uh, sailors like vasco da gama and pirates etc they would go to other countries on long voyages they would take experts who were good at translating languages like arabic languages that they knew about right and then when they came to india india also was in contact with the arabic world so you would have indian arabic translators also and that's how there would be some kind of uh, communication via a third language so that's how i think it happened because india has for thousands of years had contacts with various other countries and cultures and indians would have known multiple languages especially in the court of a king you would have experts who could translate multiple languages that is a guarantee and that's how they would have found some common language and used that to communicate make sense yes so but in in we see this in the whole world like anyone going to any country in the past and we see trades happening so like uh, there must be a common language like something or that so like you I, talk very that... specifically about india my question was like a general thing like how trade happened if everyone had a different language and no common language there see the world did not begin at a certain instant when nobody knew each other's languages right the world has always been in communication for Indi- for instance india and greece were in contact about 2 and 1/2000 years ago when the seleucid when when the when seleucus nicator and his predecessors etc they tried to invade india and there is there are sign- uh, there are significant similarities between the languages like greek and sanskrit so it is not that hard to communicate and we would have persian translators also at that time persian is even closer to sanskrit than greek for instance and india had communication with rome for for 2 and 1/2000 years so there was always contact there was contact with southeast asia uh, for 3000 i mean 3000 years before today the uh, people of kalinga were trading with southeast asia so it's it's always been a culture a maritime culture india and other countries also would be in communication and contact with neighboring countries so there's always this network effect so you will always find somebody who can translate something for you okay all right sir thank you nice question nice meeting you bye okay let me bring in uh, shrey paliwal hello sir ram ram sir ram ram ji ram ram where are you from sir? ram sir, ram i am actually i'm from delhi but i'm currently in chennai now all right sir, great nice meeting you sir actually i've been trying to get your stream so i actually have a I mean quite a many i would not say many but around three question if if it's possible you can answer 
go ahead ask me i'll i'll take at least one go ahead sir my fifth one is related to sir uh, acupoints chakras and martial arts and how is that uh, sir thai martial art uh, indonesian martial arts and uh, feelings are much i mean they are able to advance but our indian martial arts i mean there are still hmm. still art but not uh, very used much i mean you can see sir used to be many kickboxing league where many white people used to be rule or either can people used to ring then suddenly some uh, thai people came and they beating the hell out of all the americans then suddenly sir uh, from filipino a very good boxer his name was a uh, uh, many pakyo many pakyo he just just short guy and he started beating almost everyone uh, sir mm. sir first of all why weren't we able to get this capability of martial art from india and uh, second Very question, question. Sir, second ah. question sir related to sankat gupta sir that sankat gupta you, you mentioned earlier sir uh uh-huh. sir uh, most of the means uh, in english being uh, asking they said that wounds uh, were finished because uh, they had too many enemy but uh, when i study and uh, try to find out but uh, and study that it was sankat gupta who actually completely finished the wounds sir why is it that uh, some people are saying different and uh, I mean most of the current historians are saying different thing okay let's take these two you have taken two but for you i'm going to make an exception i'll answer both so i don't so know about chakras and all but yes but the martial arts i think india is the place from where the olden in the olden days martial arts spread out because if you look at the various martial arts in asia you have uh, karate in japan which essentially originates from shaolin in china you also have taekwondo in korea which seems to have originated from china again so you have silat yes you you have the the uh, you have uh, muay thai in thailand you have yes, uh, blood sport in cambodia you have silat in philippines in, yes, in philippines it's kali is it in indonesia it's silat so there are both, both, both kali and uh, silat are from indonesia ha ah, kali and silat are both from indonesia that movies are red red one and red two that i made it more uh-huh. famous and more practical right. now actually people from all over the world are learning silat but uh, that's are they are learning muay thai silat and but uh, i don't see why there is no improvement in india i mean we still have a wrestler but uh, i mean we still I mean we still do sir desi kushti log hote hain lekin fir bhi olympic mein gold lagbhag bahut na ke barabar hi aa raha hai jab maine dekha hai ki sir तो मतलब मैंने प्रैक्टिस करते हुए देखा और यकीन नहीं होता कि मतलब ऐसे प्रैक्टिस करता कि हर कैटेगरी में मेडल तो आना चाहिए सर फिर भी नहीं आ पा रहे Yes, yes. Very good question. Very good question. So, I, you know, what happened is that our tradition, our we had a tradition of martial arts, but it was destroyed systematically by the foreign occupiers. पहले तुर्क आए थे. The Turks came to India first, and they did not want the Indians to to be able to fight. so they systematically bro- destroyed our universities temples all that and also the martial arts tradition and the british also did that they starved india they banned martial arts you had all these martial arts in india the rajput martial art of sword fighting it's it's extinct today and you you had various other forms of uh, martial arts all that is left in mainland india is kalari payutu in south and shastra vidya which is like 2% of the main martial art of the overall martial art and we know that india was the home of martial arts because our great um, uh, guru one of our great gurus buddhism went to china and taught them what they now called kung fu 
So Kung Fu came from India. It is a yoga-based martial art. So we had these traditions. The foreign occupiers of India destroyed the traditions. Iske liye aaj hamare paas hi traditions nahi hai, and it is still alive in Southeast Asia, in China, in Japan, Korea, etc. Now, uh, now you say that we have all these uh, wrestlers kushti karte hain, but why are we not winning medals? It is because we, there is no systematic teaching. We are, we have the genetics, we have the strength. Sab ladke achche, strong hai, sab mein achcha genetics hai. But they are not taught properly. Proper nutrition nahi milta hai, proper systematic training nahi milti hai, or proper funding nahi milti hai, and proper motivation bhi nahi milta hai, right? Uh, if you have, if you have an athlete, that athlete needs motivation, protsan chahiye, funding chahiye, achcha facilities chahiye. Ye sab nahi milta hai India mein. Iske liye, despite the incredible talent, we are not doing well. Lekin dhire dhire dhire, ab thode thode medals aare hain. Ab 10 vars aur rukiye, aur medal milenge. And about uh, about the Huns, apne Huns ke baare mein baat ki. To kya yes, hua tha ki uh, the Huns started invading India during the uh, late Gupta uh, Gupta Empire's uh, time. Around uh, 400-500 AD, uh, you can look it up. So the Huns tried to invade India. There were multiple waves of invasions. At the same time, they were also invading the Roman Empire. So they were in in um, they were spread throughout Central Asia and Eurasia. So they tried invading India multiple multiple times. They took over Gandhar. They had kings like Kingila and uh, Toramana and what's his name? Uh, Mihirkula, etc. Mihirkula was a very evil person, but the others were good, more or less. I mean, reasonably good. So they tried invading India multiple times. It was Skanda Gupta who repeatedly repulsed these invasions. And he was able to successfully kick them out of India as long as he was alive. After he died, the invasion started again. And the Huns were able to establish small kingdoms in various parts of northern India. And then they assimilated within the population. That so is the rel related to this Huns question, sir. Huns were also barbaric. Turkic Islamic people were also barbaric. So no. how is it that, uh, sir? They both are, they were both almost equally barbaric. If we talked about uh, cruelty, but how is it that uh, they were able to finish Huns but not Islamic invasion? Also, sir, I this is what I think, sir, because although India does get under Islamic invasion and uh, almost all capture got. I mean, all India, but we still keep many many kingdoms still keep fighting. Sir, is it that uh, yeah. India in effort to still keep fighting after under Islamic Islamization that Islam was not able to reach China, Korea, and Japan? Because I okay, actually feel that that is also a possibility. See, the Huns were not Islamic when they came to India. They were uh, they were the they were believing their their culture, the religion was Tengrism. It is Sir, a not, uh, culture. That is the original uh, culture Islamic of the Huns. Time, Sir, I'm, I was talking about cruelty, not just the is Islamic invader. I'm talking about cruelty of both. Okay, okay, got it, got it, got it. So the Huns were not cruel. Only one of their kings, whose name was Mihir Kul, he was cruel. He was an atheist. The other Huns, they established Hindu kingdoms in uh, in present-day Afghanistan. They were called the Kabul Shahis, the Hindu Shahis. They were of Hunnic origin, and they defended India from the Turkic invaders in the beginning. You know, for a couple of centuries. So the Huns were not cruel. It is later the Turks who were cruel and they were barbaric and all that. So it's totally different. Take care, sir. Good questions and very nice meeting you. All right. Thank you. Okay. That was a long uh, interaction. Everybody is raising their hand and waving their hands. Rupesh. Hello. Uh, hello. Good, good evening, sir. Can you hear me? Good evening. Yes, I can hear you. Where are you from, sir? 
I'm from Aurangabad, Maharashtra, sir. All right. So, what's your question? Sir, I had actually two questions. Uh, you can answer any one of them. Uh, yeah. The first question is: After independence, why did Myanmar, Nepal, Sri Lanka didn't become a part of India? Because actually they were under British administration at that time, na. And even uh, Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose captured that Myanmar and Burma wala part. So it should have become a part of India. But why didn't it become a part of India? And my second question is: Why is like, मतलब all countries in which a rightist government is in power are trying to expand uh, its of what we say territory like india like they are planning for akhand bharat like china wants a greater china russia wants ussr back turkey wants its ottoman empire back like kind of that thing it has nothing to do with right or left everybody wants that everybody wants more power sir that's the nature of power once you are in power whether you're president prime minister ceo whatever you want more power that is the simple nature of power power is a force of nature power doesn't like vacuum when the, where there is vacuum power will go and expand now when you have a dearth of power when you have less power then whoever is under you will want to get out and they will want to become independent from you that's just the nature of uh, of the world so if you look at uh, the history of india in the past 2000 years we had a great kushan empire and then slowly because uh, after kanishka the kings who succeeded him were not as powerful then it fragmented because when you have a emperor who is not very powerful you will not want to pay taxes to him bhai tu kon hai why should i pay taxes to you you're not strong enough so i'll declare independence that's how it happens so in 1947 when india became in the so called independent india the indian government was not powerful enough and they were not even willing to be able to administer myanmar etc sri lanka right our leaders wanted to break were very very happy to break india up they were, they they gave up east pakistan which is now bangladesh they gave up uh, the indus valley etc to to the pakistanis and so on and they even allowed the pakistanis to take out uh, take over pok so india was not powerful enough our leaders were did not have the will the willingness to keep india unified and to fight against anybody who wanted to break india when you have a leader who has no wish to keep india unified then why would countries why would uh, territories like myanmar sri lanka want to be part of that nepal want to be part of that you are weak you are incompetent you are going to give this country 30 40 50 years of nehruvian rate of growth why should i be under you let me be independent i'll i'll manage my own affairs that's just how it works that's the way of the world when you have a power when you have a powerful leader who is able to give his subjects or her subjects what they want everybody wants to be part of that when you have a weak leader nobody wants to be part of that that's just how it goes and that's why myanmar etc are not part of india sir but uh, like uh, sardar vallabhbhai patel united whole india but he didn't uh, bring uh, bhutan back i think he will have to answer that for us <laughs> thank you why sir. didn't he bring nepal back why didn't he take back sri lanka come on I will research on that, sir. Yeah, exactly. All right, good questions. Thank you, sir. Nice meeting you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, uh, let's bring in our great, great one of my favorite guests, Soham. Hello. Oh, yes, sir. Sir, एक important सवाल ये बहुत important है और I think जो किसी ने ये सवाल नहीं पूछा है तो ये मैं सवाल किताब में लिखा हो लंबा है तो मैं बोलता हूँ जरूर इफ हिंदू कैन डू अश्वमेधा सो इट इज पॉसिबल दैट हिंदू डू इट हॉर्स मीट 
because other religion for example not not a not pagan religion roman religion other religion for example not religion roman religion after sacrificing the animal for a ritual purposes the meat of the animal is eaten by the either the priest or the king or the people of the community or the people of the of that particular region yes so what's the so, question to mera sawal hai ki agar hindus horse sacrifice kar sakte to horse ka meat khate hai kya nahi kyunki maine ye lekar search kiya but mujhe koi answer nahi mila see i am not an authority on the precise rituals of ashwamedha yagna i may be perhaps wrong about this lekin maine iske bare mein padha tha long time ago a long time ago maine padha tha iske bare mein and from what i can recall right now after the horse sacrifice was completed uh, ashwa ka sacrifice hota hai uh, in a ritualistic manner uske baad i believe uska meat khate hain just for the purpose of completing the ritual it doesn't mean that hindus ancient indians used to eat horse meat every day nahi aisa nahi tha it was only for the purpose of completing this particular specific ritual that end at the end of the ashwamedha yagna when the horse is sacrificed in a ritualistic manner then everybody eats a little bit of the meat not everybody who the king the queen the perhaps the the priest perhaps aisa kuch to tha so i think whoever is interested in this needs to go to the vedic text read it properly i think that's what is mentioned in it if i am mistaken then please i forgive me i apologize but that's what i rem- remember reading okay so it doesn't mean that hindus used to eat me eat, eat horse meat every day aisa bilkul bhi nahi tha this is only a very rare occasion right but this proves that hindus can eat horse meat at least mera wo prove ki hindus ha yahi mera yes, point yes, yes you are right Sir, soham there is nothing again, there is nothing in hinduism that says you cannot eat horse meat or 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 goat meat or rabbit meat or duck meat or anything aisa kuch nahi hai hinduism mein hinduism kehta hai ki as far as possible don't be cruel the highest way the best way of living is to be vegetarian but aisa nahi hai ki bhai aap kuch kha hi nahi sakte meat you can eat meat many kshatriyas etc in the past used to eat meat no, 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 i understand sir yeah, yeah. sir or it is why ye isi sacrifice se related hai sir boliye काउ हम लोग के सेक्रेट एनिमल आई अंडरस्टैंड क्योंकि वो भी बोविन बोविन फैमिली से ही बिलोंग करता है बट बफलो आल्सो बिलोंग फ्रॉम बोविन फैमिली पर उसका उसको भी क्यों सैक्रिफाइस किया जाता है इन हिंदू रिलीजन बिकॉज इन इन आप वो मां दुर्गा का दुर्गा पूजा का फेस्टिवल तो आप जानते हैं जहां पर दुर्गा मोहिषासुर को मार देता है तो मोहिषासुर का जो फेस है वो एक बफलो जैसा है तो कुछ हिंदू बफलो का सैक्रिफाइस कर ये एक्सक्यूज देकर कि देखो महिषासुर का तो फेस बफिलो जैसा है तो तो बफिलो को मारना एक तरह से महिषासुर को मारने के बराबर इज इट जस्टिफाइएबल सी यू नो व्हाट कल्चर रिलीजन ट्रेडिशंस दे आर नॉट ऑलवेज लॉजिकल हर चीज में मैथमेटिकल लॉजिक अप्लाई नहीं कर सकते हम you know culture evolves over centuries over thousands of years there are lots of things that are not remembered today there are reasons that we don't we may not be able to re- re- remember today and things like that and what you are saying is correct the buffalo ye bovine animal hai definitely it's a bovine animal uski shakal agar uska chehra hum dekhenge to it is like cow but it's black so but it is a cow, it is difference. a relative of cow ye cow ka ek rishtedar hai isliye ye sawal maine bahut bar internet mein 
सर्च किया ये बॉट टाइप कि 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 बफेलो भी काउ के रिश्ते तब उसको क्यों सेक्रीफाइस करे बलि का बगैर वो क्यों बनता है मगर हंगामा हुआ है इवन बफेलो मीट लेकर भी हंगामा हो जाता है तो इसलिए सर अब एक मैं और एक तो है ये सवाल नहीं एक सजेशन है बोलिए सजेशन या आप प्लीज आप अपने नेक्स्ट पॉडकास्ट अजीत भारती को लेके आइए इसका एक रीजन भी है अजीत भारती अच्छा 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 ओके ओके आप उसको इसका रीजन भी है वो आपने कुछ वीडियोज में समीडियो वो कहा है कि चंगेज खान ने किल थाउजेंड हिंदू हजारों हिंदुओं को मारा है तो नहीं इसलिए तो आप okay, इसलिए आप अजीत पार्टी को नेक्स्ट पॉडकास्ट में लेकर ये चंगीज खान का ये जो ये इशू लेकर थैंक यू फॉर सजेशन थैंक यू फॉर सजेशन थैंक यू मेरा और एक तो सवाल है मैं नेक्स्ट पॉडकास्ट में बोलूंगा ये Do I see somebody I haven't seen before? Is everybody repeated? Chale Krishna Nambiar ji ko bolate. Hi Krishna. Good evening, sir. Hello, sir. Namaste. I'm Krishna Hello. from Bangalore. Bangalore. Nice meeting you, sir. Yeah, nice yeah. meeting you. Nice meeting you. Very, very glad I got an opportunity to speak to you, sir. So likewise, likewise. Uh, Tell me, what's your okay. question? Uh, sir, so I'm originally from Kerala, and in Kerala we have a tradition of uh, mat- matrilineity. So I have inherited my family name from my mother, and there is no system of gotra mm-hmm. at all. So, mm-hmm. uh, do do you have any idea when this tradition sort of uh, started in Kerala, or or if it's there in any other any other uh, part of India? Uh, unfortunately, I don't have the answer to when and why this started. India, as you know, mm-hmm. India is a land of lots and lots of different traditions. We are a very diverse, very plural. civilization lots of diverse traditions whose origins are for some reason obscure today we have lost contact with our past but we are all bound together under one civilizational cultural umbrella so in kerala like uh, like you say there is this uh, tradition of matrilineal inheritance and all that i think uh, there are the, in kurg also there is this matrilineal uh, tradition mm-hmm. right the matrilineal mm-hmm. custom in the northeast of india in the garo hills uh, in meghalaya etc in some places in the northeast you have matrilineal uh, traditions and customs so it's not uh, kerala is not the only place i think in, in the nayars you have it are, uh, is it in the yes. among the nayars yeah. yes among yes. the nayars and even the kshatriyas as well even the kings used to uh, inherit uh, the throne from their maternal uh, uh, uncle right right so it's it's mm-hmm. so india has i mean india has existed for more than 10000 years as mm-hmm. a distinct uh, visible culture and civilization and mm-hmm. so if you look at 10000 years of history so much can happen and so many different traditions can right. evolve right. and the thing about india is that nobody has ever tried to tell people that you cannot do this because we do this right. you live right. your way i'll respect that i'll live my way you respect that and that's how it always been so mm-hmm. that's why we have so many diverse traditions coming uh, that have evolved unfortunately mm-hmm. i don't have an answer as to how this started in kerala maybe i will look mm-hmm. into it it's certainly a question that's very fascinating it's a very mm-hmm. fascinating tradition 
and it's it's a very rare tradition so i think it should be preserved and it should be treasured you know right. this sort of tradition in india which right. which completely goes against what the leftists say about this patrilineal nonsense that they try Correct. to yeah. uh, portray us as being you know we have all of this we have so much diversity so i think i will i'll try and research this maybe i will call some expert from kerala who can talk about this perhaps if i can find somebody but it's a very that, good question great, you asked i'm glad you asked it right that be great sir and then i'd like analyzing that uh, what you're doing is uh, extremely amazing sir uh, there are many young young people who are coming to your show and and being inspired by what you're doing so thanks a lot for that sir thank you so much very nice meeting you nice meeting you nice meeting you sir bye 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 okay um gautam panda hello good evening sir hope you are good evening sir hope you are fine yeah. good evening good evening gautam sir, where are you from sir I am from Odisha, and actually, I have been uh, in your last podcast too. So, oh, you I were guess, okay, okay. Nice meeting so, you, then again. Okay. Yes. So, sir, my question is that how is the second space race currently unfolding, and hmm. how will the scenario be like in the future, according to you as a astrophysicist? And uh, please That's provide right. some contrast yeah. to first space race. very interesting question very interesting question so so the first space race started with the launch of the sputnik satellite was it 1957 it's somewhere in the 1950s the americans and russians were both trying to do this so what happened is that uh, the americans had this thing called operation paper clip in which they were try they were able to abduct or acquire german rocket scientists yes sir the ones yes, who had built the v1 etc rockets Yes. one of one round was the was their was the major fish that they caught so they they yes. brought these people as tow's prisoners of war de facto to the us and the russians took whoever else they could and hmm. these are the sergey scientists Korolev. who started the sergey korolev was russian but the russians first acquired yes. some german scientists and they acquired some expertise like the r2 rocket was it i don't i don't know what's what's the name of the rocket i don't sir, remember right now but yes sir r2 was in icbm and uh, sergey korolev was from ukraine sergey korolev was the chief designer they called him the integral yes. the americans called him the integral if you read that book what's it called uh, i forget the names of the books man but yeah yes. so these are the guys who started the space race and when the americans and the russians acquired these german scientists this they poured a lot of money into becoming the first to go to space the russians were able to do it first and then the americans were scared what if they can nuke us from space what if they can drop nuclear bombs from, yes. from space yes, so yes. this space race started like that at that time the technology was not very well developed and yet they were able to do so much today you have enormous advances in computing power you have enormous amounts in mater- uh, advances in material science you have much stronger materials you have way more powerful computers that you could not imagine in the 1960s and so on so yes. today we are seeing the witnessing the birth of the second space race it is more like a private space race you have your private companies yes. that are uh, participating yes. in this and there are two three things happening firstly in the next 5 years you're going to witness the great moon rush everybody is going to yes, rush yes. for the moon yes. india tried it but we failed with the chandrayaan 2 we were supposed to land the, that lander there for some reason yes. the lander did not land properly it crashed yes let's not yes. go into why that happened but uh, we tried now we are sleeping we should have immediately the next year send the send it uh, send a chandrayaan 3 but we still haven't yes, done sir. that now sir the americans are planning to send we launched uh, this year this year this year okay 
I see. So the Americans are planning to send people to the moon in 24, 25, thereabouts. The Russians mm-hmm. may be planning something. The Chinese have been doing very good progress in this. India sir, is still sleeping. Yes, sir. Sir, Russia and China have already sent a memorandum of yes. understanding. You are very well informed. I am very impressed, sir. Very, very impressed. So they are doing very well in this. And uh, India is planning some things here and there. Like you said, Chandrayaan 3 this year, hopefully, I hope. And then we have yes. this uh, manned space program, crude space flight, which may happen, uh, Gaganyan, whatever they call it. So yes. India will do something or the other and so on. Right. So the reason why everybody is going to the moon right now is because the moon is full of resources. First of all, there is water there in certain yes. places that you can use for a permanent uh, moon station, human uh, uh, moon base there. And also the regolith or the soil that the the soil of the moon yes. it contains helium 10 etc some things sir, uh, sir they, helium 3 which can be used yes sir helium 3 okay helium 3 right i forget my physics man <laughs> so th- yeah, that yeah, could be fine. the fuel for future nuclear reactors right uh, fusion reactors yes. if we can build those yes. so in, once once we acquire that we are able to develop that technology that that, that nuclear fuel will be very 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 valuable mm-hmm. so the moon is a great uh, great place to get that from so there are reasons why we are first going for the moon. There's going to be a big rush for the moon in the next five, ten years. I hope India is part of that. So that is what the space race is about. Of course, we know that uh, Elon Musk wants to go to the moon in the next five, ten, twenty years maximum. And once that is uh, uh, once we are able to do that, other countries will try and uh, do the same thing, emulate that. So eventually, you will see a competition for territory on the on on the moon and on yes. Mars as well in the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years. So that's how yes. one could expect this to progress. Sir, and right, sir? Uh, I have three I have three suggestions for you. Uh, first, of all, <laughs> yeah, first of all, yes, it sir. would be very cool if you bring a virologist to your podcast or an mm. astrobiologist. Or mm-hmm. other than that, other than that, uh, if you could bring someone with a conflict of interest, I mean, who thinks uh, mm. in a other way, like uh, some leftist or Mars. something like that? Somebody no, no, Mars, no, <laughs> no, like like some leftist kind of guy. So you give know, me a give me a name. A I, whom should I bring in? Whom should I bring in? Tell me. Uh, I don't know the names of uh, any prominent virologist or astrobiologist, but I'm talking about leftist. Uh, from... Give me the name of a prominent leftist. Uh... Mr. Manmohan Singh. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, like some journalist, you know. Like okay, okay. Uh, Who? What next? A- Akash Banerjee, I guess. I haven't heard of him, but okay. Okay. Is okay, that sir. is that it? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. All right. Nice meeting you. Very interesting questions. Thank you. Yes. yes. Take care. Bye. Okay. Um. Uh, is there somebody who I have not met before? Please raise your hands. Okay, uh, Rudra Singh. Hello. Hello. Namaste, sir. Namaste, namaste. Where are you from, sir? I'm from Devgarh, Jharkhand. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. What's your question, sir? Sir, from last uh, few days back, uh, Singapore PM um, <laughs> Lee Shin Hoong. <laughs> Lee Shin Loong. Sir, he made an absurd statement about India that uh, half of the MPs in the parliament are criminals. And uh, oh. he 
he got this information from international media and mm-hmm. uh, the thing is that from far, um, past two years or so the entire propaganda is going from uh, western media that uh, uh, hindophobic propaganda that india is bad and this and that and uh, you can see that um, from this propaganda our allies are also having a negative sense about india which they were not having few years back or past decade or so this kind of propaganda okay, question, and, and uh, what can india do to tackle this propaganda and shit okay so you started with singapore okay so let me address the singapore thing the prime minister of singapore mr i forget his name um, i don't want to mispronounce it so i'll not say it but the prime minister he made some statements about uh, some parliamentarians in india who have some criminal record or something and he also said something uh, very nice about mr shri shri jawarlal nehru ji and so on so i would like to point out a couple of things singapore is not a democracy it's a de facto one party dictatorship and the current prime minister of singapore his father mr lee kuan yew was the founder of singapore so to say and he was an out and out dictator he was a dictator and he disappeared many people who were not very convenient for him you know disappearing someone one wonders what that means so who are these people to talk about india they are not even a democracy they are a dictatorship it's a one party dictatorship who, who are they to talk about india if they want to talk about india then they should be prepared for the kind of response that will come back so we don't have to give give a damn about what these people have to say if they want to say something we can show them the mirror first look at yourself in the face look at the, look at yourself in the mirror then you talk about somebody else now when you talk about this uh, propaganda that is uh, promoted in the west this hindu phobic propaganda and all there's nothing we can do about it right because the entire western media it serves their national interest it serves the western interest we think they have a free and fair media it's 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 an illusion the media over there is nothing but the propaganda arm of the state the bbc is the propaganda arm of the of the british government for the past god knows how many decades that's what it is it is simply propaganda we think that because they have this posh english accent that's what they they're right no they are propagandists similarly for the washington post new york times cnn whatever else it is it's all propaganda the thing we can do is once we have sufficient money we can try and buy some of those media outlets and then have them tout our you know spout our propaganda uh, and what the other thing we can do is why can't we have a bbc like organization or cnn like organization of our own which is globally relevant and globally visible we have the money to do it but apparently we don't have the will to do it we have something called doordarshan which is not even visible within india it is still behaving like it is still in the 1970s so we need to welcome ourselves into the 21st century and play by the 21st century rule book you know that's what we need to do so that's what i can say sir nice question good question thank you sir and once again namaste very nice meeting you thank you uh, sir you were making this small clip videos previously Mm-hmm. you were also please continue that because it engages the audience means not all the audience are here for one or two um, hour long podcast and the small clips does at least it will grow your audience and more people will come to see this i hear you i hear you thank you for the suggestion thank you namaskar take care namaskar namaskar take care bye okay
Uh, I know people are waiting for quite some time. I apologize to everybody who's waiting. Let's bring in Mr. Prab Chauhan. Hello. Good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. Where are you? Where are you I'm from? I'm Winnipeg, Canada. Originally from Patiala, Punjab. Nice to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you. So, how What's are your you, question, sir? sir? So, my question I'm very is... Well. Um, so, it's a very sensitive topic and I've been searching about it since when I was a teenager, but nobody could answer mm -hmm. it properly. It's about Operation Blue Star. We Punjab, we people of the Punjab have been affected very, very, very extremely by that operation. So, I have a couple of questions re regarding to that. I'm a very, just to make clear, I'm not a pro Khalistani or something. I have to give okay. the disclaimer. I'm a very neutral and fact-based person. So, my question is, Couple of questions with regards to that, if I may ask. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. <clears throat> um, first of all, was it necessary? Was the burning, uh, was burning of the library, Sikh reference library, was which held many, many historical documents and literature, literary facts uh, of the Sikh history, was it required to burn it? And if the purpose was to flush out the Kharkus, that could have been happened when they were traveling India carrying AK-47s in open in, in an open environment, and the day was chosen of the day was chosen when the founder of the Golden Temple was um, was assassinated, killed, mm -hmm. or eliminated by the Mughals. That week was chosen. Can can we see it as a systematic killing of a certain community by Indian government? I see. I this is one chapter of history that I am not very conversant with. I, I I can certainly say from a big picture perspective that uh, the government, the Congress government of the, that time, messed this situation up very badly. This could have been handled much better. Whatever happened, the the, the uh, taking up of arms and all that in this region, that could have been nipped in the bud. It's not like it, they could not see it coming. So I think it was botched up very badly that's that's what i can say from a macro big picture perspective i have not studied the step by step uh, events of operation blue star what happened what was burned what i know was that there was a lot of destruction uh, was it needed was it required was it necessary i don't quite know uh, maybe i will look into this in the future and perhaps talk about this but uh, from a very honest uh, perspective i don't quite know what exactly happened there you know so so unfortunately, I cannot answer that. that then can I ask a question, question, Professor? If go ahead, go ahead. Let's let's. Yeah. So, uh, so I am I am a Rajput, Prabh Pratap Singh Chauhan, mm -hmm. but I follow Sikhism. There's a quite a mm -hmm. debate between me and my friends that uh, how can I be a Sikh and be a Rajput? So can you please explain that? Can, can why you can't you be a Sikh and be a Rajput? <laughs> yes, please. Can you explain see, that uh, to your masses? See, see, it's very simple. It's very simple. See, Rajput is not a religion. It is not a belief system. It's an ethnicity. It's your lineage that goes back a, a few thousand years. So you can be a... I mean, there are lots of Punjabis who are converting to Christianity today. They may be Jats, they may be Rajputs. They are converting to Christianity. I mean, should they do that? Being Rajputs or Jats? So, so the thing is very simple. Whether if you are a Rajput, it means that is your lineage. It means you have a certain line of ancestry. But it doesn't prevent you from uh, practicing whatever faith, whatever belief system, whatever rituals, traditions you want. It's your choice. So why can't you be a Sikh if you're a Rajput? I see absolutely no, no nothing wrong with that, right? That's all I can say. Thank you a lot, sir. And please keep, keep, keep up this good work. Thank you. 
मोस्ट वेलकम नाइस टू मीट यू ओके ओके लेट्स ब्रिंग इन मिस्टर प्रणव रॉय हेलो नमस्ते सर नमस्ते नमस्ते रॉय फ्रॉम सर पाटलिपुत्र सोसायटी Good question. Good question. Good question. Good question. It's always see before you do anything, you have to do a cost versus benefit analysis. What is it going to cost you to do this, and what benefit do you gain from that? In the present situation, in the present context, let's say it becomes possible tomorrow to reintegrate Pakistan. Should we do it? No, no, not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not next year. Not next decade. The Pakistani culture is incompatible with Indian values. whether you like it or not that's just that's the way it is they have this culture of suicide bombing they have the culture of terrorism they have the culture of army rule and so on and so forth right of of all kinds of atrocities you simply cannot have a population like that and allow them to to run rampant in the rest of india you simply cannot allow that what india so, so what needs to happen this is our this is our land it is our ancestral land no matter where you are from whether you are from the east of india magadh patliputra or anywhere else your ancestors at some point in time lived in that part of, the, of, of our country it is the ancestral territory of all of us so what needs to happen is first of all we need to end this army rule which means that for in the next decade or so we have to end the army rule we have to liberate the people of sindh from that the people of balochistan from that the people of punjab people of pashtunistan let them reintegrate or go independent uh bring back pok at least and then over time over a few decades we can de-radicalize the people de-traumatize the people and when they are at a more civilized state of existence we can reintegrate them so it's not a next week project or next month project it's a 100 year project we are a very ancient civilization we have to see things from a century upon century perspective and we are simply one of the links in the chain our descendants will take care of that when the time is right that's how we have to see it Uh, do do you think that uh, the indian government is thinking like that i think the, this indian government now is thinking differently from what we the kind of governments we had in the past i think there is mm-hmm. an, a significant element of long term thinking now which is good all right all right okay good question and, sir is meeting you again okay uh, hold on also can you just ask one question and you have to answer like yes no or i don't know an answer that all right Go ahead. Uh, you go keep ahead. talking about uh, you. You keep talking about the uh, that invisible hand that uh, the in like in front of them the Indian government is like very weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, uh, that invisible hand is uh, essentially United States and uh, its allies, with the Western world, so-called Western world, and some elements of the Western world. It's possible. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Uh, who? Let's bring in Mr. Rahul Kadam. I believe I have not seen this gentleman before. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, sir. Sir, where are you from, I'm sir? Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Mumbai, Maharashtra. Nice to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you. 
so uh, what's your question so, uh, i have a question regarding mm-hmm. the uh, as you know that today is chatrapati shivaji maharaj jayanti mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i want to know how we are following today the governance pattern which was uh, which were followed by uh, maratha empire doing their uh, their their years of governance are we are following that same pattern or there is any difference in that excellent question i spoke about this briefly at the beginning of today's session so the pattern of governance and administration that the maratha empire had it is not being followed today in india okay, okay. it is not being followed at all the principles and values of chhatrapati shivaji have been consigned to the dustbin today we are not governing and administering this country according to the vision the principles and the values of chhatrapati shivaji maharaj we are not doing that we raise slogans every day chhatrapati shivaji maharaj ki jai jai shivaji jai jai bhawani and all that we keep saying that it is just slogans 2 minutes slogan bol diya and bhul gaye fir that's what we are doing he, he yes. chhatrapati shivaji maharaj was a man of principles he had certain values that he lived his life by and he died by that he was a great man and we are not following those principles if he were to see india today he would be deeply disappointed with what our leaders have done to this country this is not the india he wanted he had a vision for india it was yeah. established for some time under hindu swarajya after because of his because of his successors but then they frittered it away and today's india is not the india that chhatrapati shivaji maharaj wanted he would be deeply disappointed to see this so we are not following the governance uh, patterns the governance uh, system etc administration and all that those principles of the baratha empire we are not we are totally different from that we are following a broken down western model of of governance so that's that's why india is not doing well today so sir should we follow that or the today's yes. pattern no we so have to see we have to do we have to ask ourselves one question that in the past 2000 years of our history at what points in time was india great and then we can ask ourselves what about following that pattern and adapting it for the 21st century it's possible see the yeah. principles of governance the principles of power are timeless you can always adapt them for any any situation for any century so today we have the 21st century we can adapt those indian principles indian values for the 21st century and that will be the right way to govern india but that's not being done we are blindly co- copying the west because we think the west is better no it's not better so it's a very good question you've asked a very very pertinent yes oh, one more question uh, in today's geopolitical situation means i am not clear about uh, india uh, whether india is pro russia or pro us means india is in pro US. india india is pro india you can only be pro yourself in geopolitics there are no permanent friends there are no permanent enemies if somebody's national interest aligns with your national interest right now you can co- cooperate with them tomorrow their national interest may change and then you you don't need to cooperate with them so today india and russia are not as close as they used to be 30 years ago but we are not enemies we are, we still have a great amount of cooperation and we have a common enemy china today russia okay. and china seem to be cooperating but in the long run they are big enemies so but india sir, and russia in the long run our interests will converge but uh, sir uh, as you are aware that means china and russia uh, both are following some type of uh, communism uh, so we are uh, if we are pro russia then should 
then uh, if the crisis comes whether russia will support us or china what do you think or it will be according russia, to the that situation if there is a crisis russia will do whatever is best for their national interest if supporting india is good for the national interest they will do it if supporting china is good they will do that otherwise they will stay neutral also there is also the the option that's okay. how it goes so thank you and oh, one advice or maybe session just do long podcast uh, about history uh, about any history i just love uh, i just watch your podcast about maratha empire history and i love it thank you sir thank you so much thank you nice meeting you sir nice meeting you okay um whom shall i bring in let's bring in um, mr k bhat hello hello sir namaskar namaskar sir where are you from i am from mumbai yes sir nice to meet you what's your question wonderful to meet you sir as always so uh, sir once you mentioned uh, that the central asians of today that uh, the people that occupy central asia today are not the original inhabitants of that region and they are formed by mixing and uh, the merging of various other populations throughout the years so could you throw some light on the history of central asia right the history of central asia goes back thousands of years but what i can tell you tell you tell you in brief is this for a great part of history central asia was known as skitia skitia so the people who lived there were nomadic people of indo iranian origin they were of indian origin actually if you look at their genetics you will know that they had dark hair brown eyes and light brown skin so they would look like me or many indians right so that was the skitian ethnicity uh they also re 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 uh, joined with india at a later time so that was the ethnicity in central asia for thousands of years and the kushans were you could call them the easternmost skitians right that's what it was then what happened was that there was this uh there was this new ethnicity that emerged from the east from uh, from the easternmost part of central asia which was the hunnic ethnicity and the hunnic ethnicity gave rise to two peoples which is the mongols and the turks right so their culture religion was tengrism it's called tengrism nowadays it was a polytheistic culture so the mongols stayed in what is now mongolia and the turks they spread throughout uh, various parts of central asia and when they came in contact with islam and they they absorbed islam that's the that's when they became a militarily expansionist and they conquered uh, persia they conquered uh, they started uh, trying to invade northern india and after several centuries they were able to make inroads and the so called mughal empire is of course a turkic empire right they were the, they were turks so that's what happened and when they were able to uh, spread across central asia from a military perspective they did all kinds of horrific atrocities they killed lots of people and they took their women as their slaves and that's how you have this mixed population in central asia today who look half turks and half indian or iranian like the turkmen's the, the kazakhs etc there are various levels of mixing the uyghurs also the tajiks are mainly still indo iranian but apart from that everybody else is mixed so that is in a nutshell what happened so the same thing happened with turkey as well right the turks migrated turkey, turkey is a whole different story turkey the, the people of turkey if you look at them they are 99% anatolian or or eastern european there's very little actual turkic central asian ethnicity in them some of them you can see it's there but mostly it is uh, it is the local anatolian anatolian uh, ethnicity and genetics that you will find in these people
in turkey and sir uh, what relation like what history the turks have with the tibet region none nothing no nothing nothing of any significance nothing substantial nothing substantial um so uh, if all I right may... sir you got three questions so that should be enough all right enough. thank you nice to meet you all right thank you nice to meet you uh hello good evening sir good evening alok ji where are you from sir i am from chatisgarh sir nice meeting you sir what's your question sir actually i want to ask a question from geopolitics sir mm -hmm. sure okay sir during cold war in 1962 the us and russia or ussr to be exact they got engaged in very tense situation in cuba popularly known as cuban missile crisis so mm -hmm. around the same time the people's republic of china they decided to attack india along the mcmohan line sir so drawing its parallel with the current geopolitical scenario uh, where again us and uh, russia are engaged confronting each other in ukraine so can we say that can it be a possibility that china can invade taiwan as we are seeing that every other day the people's liberation army and specifically their air force are violating the taiwanese airspace and also conducting various military drills there so can it be a possibility that china can invade taiwan under the shadow of this ukraine crisis a very very good question yes it's always a possibility so in india we talk about a two front war right we talk about yes, the specter of a two front war one from the chinese side one from the pakistani side so there is the specter of a much larger two front scenario one in ukraine one in taiwan so right now the uh, western media is tom toming the possibility that uh, mr putin may order the invasion of ukraine tomorrow or today evening or whatever it's apparently imminent it could happen anytime in the in the next uh, couple of days that's what they are saying now i don't know how true that is i mean i, I don't think anybody has any access to the inner thinking inner workings of mr putin's mind but but let's say that the russians were to invade ukraine the nato people the americans would want to try and prevent that which means that they would get involved there in some military action that would be the perfect opportunity for mr xi jinping to use that distraction as the opportunity to make a move on taiwan it is sir it makes sense from a military and geopolitical perspective so i think if one thing were to happen there is a possibility that the other thing may also happen at the same time because we know there is a certain amount of cooperation and coordination between russia and china the so called dragon bear scenario so yes it's a possibility certainly it is yes, sir sir and i have a request also sir sir yeah. in many of your indian history podcast you have covered the history of india mainly from the territorial perspective so sir i want you to cover the maritime perspective sir sir as mm -hmm. i have read books for by sanjeev sanyal sir uh, the land of seven rivers and indian ocean chernu people so i want you to cover the history of india from maritime perspective sir as we have seen that india has many influences in southeast asia especially in indonesia and myanmar thailand also so sir that is a request from me very good and i am a big like fan it. of yours sir thank you thank you so much nice meeting you, thank sir. you sir nice meeting you thank you thank you sir bye thank you sir bye Okay, who is sleeping? Shall I wake somebody up? Let's bring in Mr. Sia Saran. Hello. Hi, sir. How are you? I am very well, sir. How are you doing? Where are I'm you from? I'm also good. I'm from Tokyo. I was in your podcast. Uh, I think a couple of uh, three or four days back, also. Arigato. So, Arigato. Thank you. 
thank you for giving me another opportunity so my quick one question is regarding the 1857 um you know first war of independence because mm -hmm. uh, in our culture we have been brainwashed to uh, to to realize or to believe that we are not one people we have all the kind of differences be it religious or you know social or maybe caste system but veer savarkar was very pointed in saying that no this was our first war of independence and even until in the modern times we get that uh, you know exposure to that concept but nobody really delves on it that why it was the first war of independence and why it was very important to say it as it was the first war of independence against the britishers and we were one people and even in today's uh, hijab row which is going on today you know it is kind of giving it a uh an excuse or a justification that yes it was just a mutiny it was nothing independence india was never one you were all different so what's your take on that my take is very simple our historians have done their utmost to portray this as a rebellion as a revolt as a mutiny like it's a it's a small little incident it was actually a pan india thing it happened all across india spontaneously at that time we did not have cell phones we did not have internet and still this entire uprising took place it was no doubt a war of independence and how do on what basis do i say it's a war of independence look at the death toll more than 10 million indians died in this in the aftermath of this it took a long time for the british to suppress all the various uh, uh, geographical the spread of this thing and in the aftermath of this entire uh, war more than 10 million indians died i don't have the reference right now but uh, if you look it up even from the british perspective i think it was published in the guardian or something and uh, there's been a book written about this that the british killed at least 10 million indians in the aftermath of this war when 10 million million people die it's not a mutiny it's not a rebellion it's a war and it's a subcontinent sized war so that itself should tell everybody it's a war but our historians have never highlighted the fact that more than 10 million indians were killed by the british in the aftermath of this uh, of this war so we all think it's a mutiny it's a chota mota happening one mangal pandey did something one tatya tope did something one rani of lakshmibai died and that's it it's not like that it it spread all across the subcontinent not everywhere as always the british were able to use their policy of divide and rule they kept some people uh, who they were able to induce some people in some parts of india to fight on their behalf and eventually that's how they were able to prevail so they have always been good at uh, exploiting whatever divisions existed in indian society and and enhancing those divisions and that's a policy that has been followed since 1947 also our historians everybody academics politicians they, all they have done is to try and divide us further and that's why today indians don't really see themselves as one people i mean our local sub national identity it takes pre precedence over the national identity because we don't have a single uh, unifying civilizational language except english which is a foreign language we the the role of sanskrit has been uh, totally removed so we don't have a unifying identity anymore and the government has ensured it is not there so there are reasons why we are so disunited even today but i think because of the internet we can all start realizing that we are just one people if you go back a couple of thousand years we all are the same ancestors so that's what i can say Thank that's you. my perspective
thank you nice meeting you thank you you too cheers okay let's uh, whom shall i bring in i can see people waiting uh let's bring in mr ratan hello uh hi sir how are you i am very well sir where are you from uh i'm from bihar uh first of mm-hmm. all i was not able to complete my education due to some financial crisis but still i have a great interest uh, in politics and and all so i have a three question uh as someone asked earlier that like as the russia and ukraine war is going on so china might invade taiwan so uh continuing that same question do we have opportunity to like uh, get the pok back like if russia uh, try to invade ukraine and on the same time if china want to like invade taiwan because they both are allies today china and russia right so can india like uh, tackle pakistan and get the pok back because we have a highest military and uh, this air force and naval naval force everything we have okay so the, this is the first question second uh, that between the time let's, of let's, uh, let's, nine... let's, let's take one question let's take one question one i think it's a very good question okay. that you asked so let's so let me take that one so what i would say is that when it when it comes to nuclear weapons state whether states whether we like it or not the pakistanis have nuclear weapons and we should have okay. see from our perspective we should have a very clear understanding of where the pakistani military's red line lies so what is a nuclear red line it is the threshold beyond which they will be compelled to use nuclear weapons we don't ever okay. want to cross that threshold whether it is with pakistan or with china right so okay. we Mm-hmm. from our strategic perspective we need to have a very clear understanding of what the red line is i am not sure pok is a red line for them but if you were to try and uh, go further it may be a red line what i would say is this if the chinese make a move on taiwan if they attempt an invasion of taiwan india should at the moment not think about pok india should immediately secure nepal and sri lanka that's what i would say there is no nuclear red okay. line there so that's what india should mm-hmm. do what is easier to uh, uh, to obtain we should obtain that i'm not saying you should invade invade and occupy it i am saying we should secure let's call it secure yep. we should secure nepal and sri lanka if the chinese dare to invade taiwan we should immediately do that pok we will think about later so that's what i would say but of course uh, i am not running the government so it's just a suggestion <laughs> right okay okay uh, one more question sir please so between the time of 1990 and 1960 uh, we have a currency of like 5000 uh, and 10000 rupees okay i don't know much about it so can you please give more details on that like how india demonetized like in the british uh, like time between 1957 uh, before 1947 and after like 1947 i think uh, pandit jawaharlal nehru continued the same thing like the, he continued everything we all know that no i don't i don't he continued all the i don't have sufficient i don't have sufficient information about that i have not studied the uh, monetary history and uh, all that of india so i won't be able to answer this sorry okay uh, no issue thank all you right. so much sir thank you nice meeting you nice meeting you thank you so Bye. much uh let's take uh, hopefully one or two more questions i know lots of people are waiting utkarsh hello hello sir hello where are you from nice. sir have you met before yes sir in last podcast i met <laughs> if i'm from okay. uh, shanghai shanghai oh yes yes yes, yes. my friend from shanghai what's up sir how are you doing ni hao good sir ni hao ni hao sir ni hao 
Last time everybody was like, I must be some agent or something. I'm not an agent. I'm very patriotic person. No, no, I never said that. (laughs) (laughs) There were some people going down in the comments. Oh, Chinese agents. Okay, okay. What's your question, sir? Okay, sir. So I want to ask... uh, for a very long time, us Indians, we are stuck in this bubble of Vasudeva Kutumbakam. We are not, we are peaceful people. We are like this, we are like that. We should not be expansionist. So how can somebody even maintain their power on a global stature, on a global stage, basically? How can we maintain our status, our stature, if we are not expansionist? Be it China, be it United States, be it Russia. Russia has its own sphere of influence. China is trying to build its own, being expansionist and all. Japan, when they had the power, they went deep inside China, all over Asia, even in Myanmar, even until Nagaland they reached, right? U.S. has has its own sphere of influence. If India, if we just maintain this kind of bad attitude that we are not expansionist, or we we are so peace-loving people, how can we even, even, even if we do become superpower, how will we sustain that for the long run? And sir, extension of this, why don't we just take POK? Like, just be assertive about it. We just take it. We just finish this problem. Let's just separate Pakistan and China. They are neighbors because of that, right? That's why China keeps poking us. Okay, I'm sitting here, but still. They keep poking us through Pakistan because they have a boundary. If they just they are just not connected, they have to deal with us. Your, your comment, sir. Yeah, good question. So I think we should learn from your hosts, China. I mean, the Chinese are very assertive. They are always expansionist. They have territorial disputes with all their neighbors. Certain territorial disputes are currently dormant, but they will be reopened at the appropriate time. So they have territorial designs on everybody. And uh, this attitude of Vasudeva Kutumbakam, it comes from the line of thinking of Sri Mohandas Gandhi and Sri Nehruji and so on, which wants to lull Indians into being passive, non-aggressive and uh, all that. So India has always been, India has always historically had a very large sphere of influence. It's been cultural mostly and uh, it's been trade related also. But from time to time, India has also been an expansionist power under certain emperors from time to time. So if India wants to secure its position as a geopolitical power, secure in at least in this Indian subcontinent, then it needs to have a military sphere of influence that extends way beyond its borders. That is non-negotiable. It has to happen. Otherwise, India is not even a regional power. So like you said, we will have to deal with the POK situation sooner or later. Right now, there is a nuclear threshold. So we need to calculate exactly what is the Pakistan army's nuclear threshold, the nuclear red line. And if POK is not part of that, we should go ahead and do it. So it is something that you cannot do it. You cannot take it flippantly. It is a very serious question. Anytime you go to war, there has to be a proper amount of calculation that goes behind that. The uh, All the, the cost-benefit analysis, the scenarios that can... Uh, you have to war game the entire situation. So I think that India needs to find the opportunity in the next few years to take back POK, no doubt about it. And if we do that, then we can cut off China from its access to Pakistan. So all this needs to happen. As India grows economically, it will also grow militarily in proportion. And when the time is right, and soon, I would say in the next 5 to 10 years maximum, we need to uh, secure POK for sure. So yeah, I agree with uh, the thing you said. Sir, uh, do you think Pakistan even has a nuclear threshold, sir? They are puny little country. You know, that compared to the size of India, even if, let's say, they dare, like, Pakistan will cease to exist. I don't think they'll be so stupid to, you know, start a nuclear war in India. They always say that new tactical nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons can't be tactical. Once you drop even a tactical nuclear weapons on India, you just cannot control the repercussions of it. India will just, India will have to go at it. So, do, they, do you think oh, that... So, we don't want have- to... 
so we don't want to inherit a nuclear wasteland i know i agree that if the pakistanis dare to take uh, use a single nuke against uh, against us we're going to flatten them for sure but then what are the what is the consequence of that we're going to inherit a nuclear wasteland do we want our ancestral lands to be polluted by nuclear uh, pollution for centuries we don't want that we have to think long term it's not about what happens now it's about where do we want to go in the next 100 200 years a leader has to think that way from our perspective we can think abhi kar lo let's do it but then what happens there's going to be nuclear fallout that will spread all across the indian subcontinent it will spread across india also if there is a nuclear war so we don't want to cross the nuclear threshold the best way of fighting the supreme art of fighting is to acquire what you want without firing a single shot sunzu that's yeah. sunzu vishnu gupta chanakya that's how yeah. we have to do it so that's the yeah. ideal way of fighting when the when your people don't even realize that you won a big victory it looks so effortless that's actually what needs to happen so let's see how it goes but we need to take back pok sooner rather than later right thank you sir thank you so much thank you nice meeting you nice meeting you thank you okay let me take one final question let's bring in mr abhishek hello hello sir hi nice meeting you where are you from sir west bengal west bengal yes great what's your question sir can you tell me about uh, who was bappa raval i've hear lot about him but we don't know much about him and sir my uh, one another question is that who was the greatest leader in indian history okay okay mm, um greatest leader in indian history look india has a 10000 plus year old history so it's almost impossible to pinpoint one person there is the great king bharat after whom our land is named so that is one we have lord yes. ram lord krishna great leaders incredibly great leaders we still worship them as gods so they they are, yes. we can uh, i can give those two examples we have kanishka the great we have the great mauryan leader uh, chandragupta maurya we had multiple great gupta uh, emperors like uh, kumara gupta chandragupta and um, what's his name samudra gupta etc uh, we had uh, who else did we have Lalita Ditta Mukta Pida. Then we had the great Chola emperors, Rajendra Chola, Rajaraj Chola. Then we, of course, had the great Shivaji Maharaj, Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj. So we had so many great leaders. It's impossible to pinpoint one. Now, what's the other question you asked? I it went out of my mind. Sir, who was Bappa Raval? Ah, Bappa Raval. What role? Yes, sir. So Bappa Raval was. Um, so you, you will find very little written about him in textbooks and uh, history books. Yes, he sir. was a Rajput warrior, and. Uh, he was a he was a very successful and powerful warrior uh i think his greatest accomplishment was in defeating the turks who had taken over parts of western india and repulsing them signif- a significant distance back westwards and he was able to reconquer punjab get rid of the turks and establish uh, civilization again for some time there and he even founded the city which is now called rawalpindi and i believe it is said according to the legend or the story that he was a disciple of baba goraknath and when he retired from his uh, career as a warrior he went up north and uh, he and his warriors went up north and they married among the people of the himalayan foothills and their descendants are called the gorkhas so they are great warriors right because they have this rajputic tradition in them warrior tradition so that is supposed supposed to be the origin of the gorkha people of uh, present day in northern india nepal etc so that's what i can say in brief about bappa raval great warrior 
Sosar means Gorkhas are also a lineage of uh, Rajput. Certainly, yes. Yes. Yeah. And sir, another question, one question. Uh, sir, <laughs> yes, sir, one question. Yeah. Sir, sir, why didn't India annex Bangladesh in 1971? Why did it was I think we will have to, to, to re-invoke. I don't know. I don't have an answer. Maybe the Americans and the Soviets did not, uh, did not allow us. Maybe they armed twisted the Indian government. Maybe the great Indian government of that time was not that powerful as we imagine it to be. We won this victory. We had the right of conquest. We conquered East Pakistan. It was ours by right of conquest. It was our territory anyway for thousands of years. And yes. yet we did not uh, reintegrate it. So I don't have an answer. I simply don't understand why we did not, we did not do it. But yeah, it's a valid question. Very good question. All right, sir. Uh, thank you, sir. Bye, sir. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. I think we are at the end of today's session. I apologize to the people who are waiting. I know lots of people are waiting. Should I bring in one more person? One more person. Okay. One last person I'll bring in. Mr. Manmath Tiwari. Hello. Hello, sir. Nice to meet you again. Sir, I was ah, here. You're back. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm preparing for my JE, so I don't get a lot of time. Where are you so, from again? I forgot. I am from Lucknow. Okay, let's. Uh, so, yours is the last question for today. What is the question? I feel very grateful for that. I want to ask that uh, how to completely decolonize my mind, like despite knowing the fact how great and scientifically advanced my civilization was, still some sort of hesitation is still left in me on like some sort of hesitation that is stopping from wearing my cultural identity on my sleeve. Like, even I think some. Some part of my mind still thinks that speaking in English is like intellectually more superior than speaking in Hindi. How do I deal with it? In fact, like rather than, in fact, I know that English is an inferior language, but still there is some sort of uh, inferiority complex, uh, complex it, yeah. in the subconscious mind. How to deal with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. good question. Uh, the first thing you have to realize is that it is not your fault that you feel this way. Since the time you were born, this has been drilled into your head from lots of different places. Your teachers, the education system, the medium of education, the media, the movies, everybody, all the so-called influencers, they put this into our heads. It takes a lot of time for this to, to this process to be undone. The first thing is that since you, the, the fact that you realize that you when you will be to some extent mentally colonized, that itself is a big victory. Right. So now what you have to do is you have to find ways to reconnect with our ancient culture. Maybe you could try and learn something. Maybe you can uh, try and look at various other things. It's a long process. Uh, it cannot happen tomorrow or next week. Maybe you should give yourself five to ten years and maybe that it's, it's a process of growth, growing as a person. We grow over years, decades. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Even I am mentally colonized to an extent. I'm speaking English. I'm more comfortable with English. Whether I like it or not. It's just what I have gone through in my life and I am. this is the outcome of that. But as long as you realize that, you know, English is not a superior language and our culture was once very great, it is still the superior culture. And then we can, when we try to reconnect with it in various ways, that's how you grow, you evolve and you decolonize. It's a long process. So one last thing, one suggestion I want to take from you, sir. So like, like in your previous videos, you keep saying that IITs of India are not up to their standards and like, yeah, some in some way like not good enough, but then that sir that demotivates me from preparing for my day. No, no, like, no, no, no. See, 
it doesn't matter where you go what matters is what quality lies inside you you may go to the worst school worst college in the world but as long as you have a certain quality and you are and you and you develop yourself sufficiently then it doesn't matter what school college you go to and the iits are not that bad they are they are worse than what i would want them to be i want the iits to be the best institution in the world that is the standards i have and from that standard from that perspective i find them disappointing that doesn't mean they are bad that doesn't mean they're terrible they can be better but they can serve the purpose for most indian students as long as you take the time to develop yourself into a into a superior human being which you can it's all up to you it's your choice what you do and you have the strength in you to do it so don't feel demotivated by my criticism of the iits the criticism is valid but it doesn't mean that it, the incidents are that bad they are still reasonably okay it what really matters is how you uh, approach your life you can make the best of any any situation so that's what i would say don't be demotivated thank you thank you so much a big fan thank you so much nice meeting you okay gentlemen and ladies ladies and gentlemen 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 all right uh that brings us to the end of today's session i apologize to my friends who are waiting really sorry uh so tomorrow we will have one more session just like this and the ones who came in today hopefully i will not bring them again tomorrow and i'll bring in i will give give opportunities to newer people tomorrow so i apologize to those who are waiting please come again tomorrow i will give i will try and give the chance to as many of you as possible i will see you tomorrow see you tomorrow until that time take care thank you everybody for watching for your support and i'll see you tomorrow thank you bye